Hello everybody, thank you very much for downloading this week's episode of the Cinema Catch-Up Club. This is just to let you know that the Cinema Catch-Up Club has an official Patreon page. If you'd like to become an official member of the club and get some bonus goodies, including early access material and bonus features only available to our patrons, then please join up at patreon.com forward slash ccuc podcast. And now, for this week's episode. Hello everybody, and welcome to the Cinema Catch-Up Club, the podcast for films that you probably should have seen by now. I'm your host, Stephen Platt. Thank you very much for downloading this week's episode. And this week, it's episode 150, so we thought we'd do something a little bit special and watch a film that's turning 100 years old. Ooh. Wow, it lines up almost. Yeah, not really. No, it's more just kind of fun because we realised that the release date for episode 150 is the 100th anniversary of The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, a silent film which uh, some consider to be the birth of horror. So, we're going to watch it. Uh, joining me as always, we have someone that has seen the film and someone that has not. Our guest who has not seen the film, it's Murray Jackson. Yes, hi Stephen. Yes, I certainly am. I'm coming out of the closet on this one because I've never seen The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. What do you know about it then? I know that it was done in Germany. Um... I know it's in black and white, mm-hmm. and I know it has, I think, for the time, some pretty freaky special effects. Um, beyond that, I don't know a hell of a lot, but I, I mean, I'm willing to give this a go, because this has been on my list of films that I must get around to watching one day, much like, and I feel ashamed for saying this, I've never seen Metropolis either. Mm. Um so yeah, I'm 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 here. I'm with it. Well, Metropolis turns a hundred in about seven years, so you know we we may get there. Between Fantastic! There. It'll probably be still on my shelf then. Mm. Uh, but yes, uh, I I also have not seen this film, uh, but my my awareness of it is basically the same as you in terms of its its German. It's considered uh, a very important fundamental film from the silent film era. Uh, so that's why we've got in uh, our expert, Doctor Brett Cullen. How are you, Brett? I'm not a doctor. A what? <laughs> Not yet, anyway. You seem so knowledgeable. A mad doctor. Yeah, that's the trick, you see. I spent the time getting all that knowledge and not time actually getting the... The Hat. Ah, right. Mm. Well, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. You have seen The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Yeah, quite a few times. I think I mentioned to you before you, when you put the uh, survey out, and I said, yep, I've lectured on this. Does that help? And you said, yes, it does. It really does. So, obviously, we're expecting most people listening to this episode (laughs) to have not watched a silent film from 1920. Probably. Probably. So... What what can what can we expect as as the the uneducated masses on this particular film? Mm. What what should we be expecting from films of this time period? This is a film that's not really of the time period. It did a lot of things that would become the norm a lot later in the twentieth century in terms of design and aesthetic and the way it presents worlds to the audience. Mm. Um, pay attention to how the worlds are staged and designed. So what the actual look of it is um it's slower the narrative is slower obviously because we're used to you know hypercut 20th century you know fitted in a trailer kind of thing mm. um yeah i won't say too much more i don't think but okay yeah we'll talk about it after but it is one of my favorite films just because it's not just for the significance but i think it did a lot of things first and it's done a lot of things really well that weren't bedded for a very long time 
All right. Well, well, he's promising big, Stephen, isn't he, really? Well, I don't want to promise anything because it could all just fall apart. That's in the eye of the beholder. Exactly. Well, uh, we are the beholders. Shall we expose it to our eyes? Shall we watch the cabinet of Dr. Caligari? Ooh, let's do it. Yes. All right. For those of you listening at home, pop in those DVDs and prepare to invent the horror genre, I guess, as we watch The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Welcome back, everybody. We've just finished watching The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. I'm joined once again by Brett Cullen. Hello. And Murray Jackson. Hello. Murray, that was your first time watching The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. What did you think? Mm, I really enjoyed this one, Stephen. Um, It has so much to take in, and you really have to pay attention. So I'm glad I wasn't sitting there doing, you know, a revision of my comic collection whilst mm. I was watching this film. I'm glad we just sat and watched. Yeah, it was... I, I found myself very um, engaged. And I think it's partly because it's it's silent film. You know, you're not getting the usual sound cues. You can't really look away because um, all the communication is, is visual. Mm. Um, you miss it very quickly if yeah. you look away. Yeah, even with paying attention there were still bits where i was like hang on a sec did he what what's going on um but but this is a really really good film Mm, um like consider yeah yeah you did never believe me no we 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 don't come here you're like i don't know Mm, i I thought i thought the moment you said it was good i thought bollocks it won't be but there we go waterworld was still bad i don't say a word against waterworld all right, we won't. We've got to do the sequel podcast where we look mm. at the three-hour cut that I went and watched after. Mm. I committed. Yeah, you did. So yeah. yeah. Um, I told This you. film, though, oh, to, yes. get it, to get as far away from Waterworld as we can. <laughs> um, it's a different film. It's Not only is it a different film, though, it feels... I'll put it this way. It doesn't feel a hundred years old. No. no. In, in a lot of its aspects. No. Um, it, it certainly doesn't feel new, but it almost feels um, timeless. Yeah, the narrative construction, the characters, the story, we've seen repeated a lot mm. through the 20th century. And there's a lot of people that point to this as the first horror film. Uh, the ending is also excellent. Mm. You know, and I, you've seen it, you know. And, oh, is it real? Like you said, mm. was it in his mind? Yeah. Or is he really Dr. Caligari? And it's just that sort of inscrutable look as, a, as the screen irises down on him. And that's the thing, The whole, all the way through the film, you mentioned, ah, oh, George Lucas would love this because of the wipes. It's an iris wipe every time, like mm. the closing and opening mm. of an eye. So you're always watching this story. Because, of course, we, we begin with the storytelling and stuff like that. But, mm. yeah, it, it holds up really well. Um, yeah, so is the old man who it opens with that he's sitting next to, is it a friend who's come to visit him in the asylum? And, and yeah, it opens up. I can't remember what was on that first reel, but there is a chunk of film missing. Mm. There is there is the sort of first-ish chunk 
of I think seven or eight minutes or something like that. Mm. So it, there is some of the story missing. Like it doesn't matter. We know what the whole thing, if it's told from his perspective, could also make sense in terms of the nightmarish world yep. that 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 this thing is set in. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's through his frame of, yeah, of reference. As I said to you, this is a mishmash of Hans Christian Andersen, Doctor Zeus, Tim Burton. Mm. The, there's all these. Yeah, this nightmarish off kilter yep. um, aspect to it, yep. mm. which fits perfectly, I guess, the idea that this is from the point of view of a diseased mind. But mm. um, or the alternative to that is that it was the worst thing that's ever happened to him. Mm. So all of his recollection of it is framed in that really gnarly, messed up, traumatized way. Mm. You know, you mentioned it right at the end. The only, t- only time we actually see those straight lines is the sanitarium. Mm. They've taken great pains with anything in the in the set because there's the stairs that we see going up and down to the policeman and they've painted a white curve that then has um, straight white lines mm. through it to really break it up. So you don't actually see those straight lines of the stairs as much, mm. but you see this weird curving white line. And like, clearly that's all very intentional, you know? Oh, it's, absolutely, it's, it's an yeah. amazing little touch of... And it makes everything else more effective, I think. Because even if you don't see it, everything is off kilter. Mm. Everything's weird. The The windows are strangely proportioned. The makeup is really stage stagey, mm. you know? Like the really heavy eye makeup and the, you know, the really yeah blown out kind of white face. The, the set, similarly as you say, looks like a, a theatre set. And yeah. obviously it's, it's 1920. Film is using a lot of theater conventions for its sets but that that unreal the 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 wonky house like the crooked house that that dr caligari is is staying in Mm. uh, as this stage touring man with a sunambulant um guy in a in a what turns out to be a pretty poorly made cabinet Um, yeah yes yeah the the cabinet itself is kind of a bit meh but that that wonkiness once again is very reminiscent of um like if you look at the sketches in um you know, as I say, like your, your hands, Christian Anderson storybooks, every mm. a lot of that, those sort of things are very off kilter as well. So, I, I think this draws on a lot of um sources. Mm. Oh, definitely, definitely, yeah. And the, the reveal of that that town, the mm. when we first see mm. the shot of it, and it's it's it, you know, it's it's very obviously a painted, painted set, yeah. yeah, but it's really captivating, yep. Um, the, the way that, um, uh, Holston Wall is is presented uh, of, of of being almost like spikes coming out of a hill. These houses, and then when we're actually in the streets and everything is slanted at these angles, it's it's so fun. Uh, yeah. I, I, as well as being creepy and scary, it's just really fun to look at. Um, and it, little details like the lamp lighter, who literally just has a stick and pokes yeah. a and lamp, flick a light on. Yeah, just a beautiful little. Or the touch. um the. Uh, thing that it, um, Caligari uses to advertise his exhibit his is is basically the scream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. I hadn't considered that, but it, it, it is. And little details like you know we don't really go into the fun fair that much, but we see you know the shots with the monkey and the organ grinder. Mm. We can see spinning yeah. tops. We like, see like enough a to go. Oh, there's a fairly sizable yeah. crowd here. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's just very. It's it's very cleverly done it, it and it feels quite claustrophobic and i think yes. that's partly because the space that they were filming in was obviously restricted yeah um and it is interesting to think about and this was something that you mentioned murray the fact that this was 
filmed and put out in 1920. So this is just after the First World War. Mm. And obviously Germany um, Deep depression. At, at that time was, well, it was the Weimar Republic. Yeah. It, it was um, going through the beginning of a very great depression, like where their currency was basically worthless and mm-hmm. all of the various things that would have been affecting um, production of this film. Um, but they were still able to make something which a hundred years later is not only still watchable, resonant, not yeah. only watchable, mm. it's great. Yep. Yeah. Like, this is a, this is a cracking little film. Yeah. And you, there are still aspects of it that um, you can, you can still have a little bit of fun with as well. I mean, yeah, there are the, the deliberate sort of over stage acting that, that they do in, in <laughs> the places, pantomime which is fun. You, mm. you can do your own little, um, you know, add your own, Add your own uh, commentary, mm. uh, you know, MST3K, mm-hmm. um, to the whole thing as well. So it's it's fun. It's engaging. I mean, there's an entire reel of despair acting. There's a lot of despair <laughs> there's acting. There's a lot of, yeah, swooning and staring off into the middle distance. Yeah, and act, like, I should say. But it had real. to be big, right? Because mm. it was silent film, so it had to be really big. And Conrad Veidt's eye acting is incredible mm. it's a more glistening and slow opening and the big heavy makeup under it to make his eyes look that much bigger and the paleness like the staging and the design of this is is still incredible today such a difference isn't there between being an actor in the silent era and being mm. an actor in the um in the the, the era of talkies yeah because they're still acting as you were saying earlier where they were developing techniques like you know fast cuts and and so on yeah yeah i mean this you know mentioning the stuff about germany it came out in the german expressionist art movement where Mm. all these soldiers all these german men women children you know young men coming back from war just went into this huge cultural depression because how do you come back from you know, the trenches and be okay. Mm. So there's a huge art movement exploring darkness and, you know, wrongness and all that kind of thing. And this film sits heavily in that period and it, it typifies a lot of that cinema that then would come after it. And it is, there's no straight lines. There's nothing, nothing straightforward. Everything's off. Everything's mm. strange. Everything's sort of alien. Nothing fits the way it should. And it's all, and it's all in sort of, you know, mundane everyday life. The houses don't sit correctly. The walls aren't right. Things don't work like you should. And then on top of that, you've got this narrative of the other, mm. you know, the somnambulist. And it's they've been looked at in a lot of things as the first zombie movie kind of thing, right? Because the whole, I don't know if you know much about the zombie story. It came from, um, you know, the deep south uh, plantations, mm. uh, drugging people who, you know, for all intents and purposes were dead, digging them back up free labor Mm. and that's kind of a zombie thing and that's what this is you know so an ambulance is soma is sleep and an ambulance is movement you know sleep Mm. sleep mover and it's it's still a great film you don't actually see Cesare that much in the film Mm. but it's this beautiful presence all the way through like a good movie monster right that nightmarish bit where he enters the room of the Mm. sleeping um, fiance um, and that the movement uh, yeah it was just yeah really Creepy. Yeah. I imagine this would be a very, very macabre film uh, for its audience at that time. Yeah. Particularly yeah, yeah. when we, we think about the films from that time period that we most commonly know these days. And it's films with Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, yep. early Laurel and Hardy stuff where it's all... But America won the war. 
you know, See, that's true was. yeah they, they can celebrate um, exactly exactly yeah, it, it is interesting that the national mood was very different yeah that how, how those uh, how, how film i suppose reflects that and clearly the impact that films of this time period we, we spoke earlier about metropolis as well which comes mm. seven years after this mm-hmm. but the the other sort of films that came out of this time period that went on to have these massive impacts and you also look at how german filmmaking from between the wars mm. was so innovative and also essentially the best in the world just in terms of yep. what it was doing you look at um a film like triumph of the will which yes. is obviously you know a documentary about how great are the nazis yeah. but if you're looking at it from a film technique perspective yep. and a documentary making, for yeah. modern filmmaking yeah you, you, you purely just looking at the the techniques and things like that you can see that um that that film showcases a decade plus of incredible film development that was happening mm. in this country it's a shame it was used to promote the nazis but that's... yeah well it, it, some of it was mm. but the ones that said no mm. left or died and, and, and a lot, i mentioned before be a lot of them went to south america yeah it'd uh, be interesting to know how many people involved in this film mm. what happened to them at the director time of the fled war? hitler hmm? he the director left i think in oh, early 30s i think he mm. left because he saw what was coming mm. sure and, uh then he died making his last film which was called ultimatum or ultimate or something like that so And that was a story that was repeated a lot through Germany. I didn't see how he died, but I I did look up briefly Conrad Veidt. He died in 43, so I Mm. wonder... Mm. Yeah, well, um, the director, Robert Vine, uh, uh, he um, fled to France. He actually died before the First World War. Um, He died the year before, but yeah, he he saw what was coming. In the Second World War? Uh, second World War, sorry, yeah. yeah. Um, That's yeah. a very impressive thing to make a movie after you've died. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Uh, yeah, although it's happened. It's, oh, happened. it's, been, it's been a couple, yeah, sorry, yeah. yes, uh, before the Second World War. Right. And, and as you say, uh, Conrad Veidt, who um, some people listening may not realise that they've seen, yeah. if they've seen Casablanca, yep. because of course, uh, famously, he, he is in that film. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, a minor he's, mishap, at least. Yeah, a little bit of a mishap, mm. but you know, these things happen. Um, he's wonderful in this fantastic Mm. very physical actor Mm. has almost no lines in the entire thing but has an amazing presence um and like you were saying you want to go see the man who laughs which is Mm. another conrad and so the side story to that is that himmel made up for the man who laughs which is a story about a guy who's always smiling he gets disfigured he's always smiling um that image is what prompted the creation of the joker Mm. of course there's the famous you know the man who laughed storyline and all that kind of thing but Mm. you look at yeah you look at the sonambulist and you look at the horror films that have come after the psychological stuff like um shutter island is an interesting like contemporary comparison there's so many stories about that whole power dynamic of you know what's real what's not Mm. oh it's a well you're the doctor of psychology Mm. so what you're saying is is salient and going too far into your research and being changed you know staring to the abyss the abyss changing your back there's so much in this film that then gets unpacked across the next century of of storytelling so not just film but Mm. everything it's it's incredible as that dot in time to Mm. go everything or huge amounts of things just spiral out from this from this yeah it feels as though film noir owns a lot yep to this as well um just just in, in the way some of the shots are constructed, in yes. the way that we showcase the guy that looks like Patrick Troughton sneaking around. <laughs> mm. Even yeah. though that was quite pantomimic, I feel as though elements of that, the use of shadows yep. um, to depict 
the 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 murder of the guy with the giant chin. Yeah, um, film noir rolls directly mm. out of this German expressionist period of light and dark and the interplay and the exploration of darkness. And of mm. course, noir is all about what's in the dark versus what the light is seeing. So it's this yeah. whole pastiche, the tone, the the thoughts of it, and then it rolls back into you know fifties brightness and the musical and all this kind of stuff and mm. takes a few more decades for it to and that there's you know back. as you were saying the use of the color tints to change the mood mm. or change the even just change the scene from night to day yep or day to night and it was a very clever use of a very limited tool mm. you know it's whatever it was because i, I dare say you, you know the, the lighting uh, would have been fairly limited back then, so mm. to to actually shoot night scenes would have been uh, well. The film wouldn't have difficult. picked it up. The mm. the sensitivity of the film just you just couldn't do that. Mm. Basically, you had to had to fake it. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I do also want to give uh, I suppose um, prompts uh, a century on to to Werner Krauss, who plays Doctor Caligari. Amazing. He's just so watchable. Even yep. though it's a style of acting which we don't see on film much these days no, um, you see the, it in like Pixar films and <laughs> well, that, well, that's just cartoons that, that are very that, large his, his acting reminded me of what modern animation is yep. where it's things like the when he was shocked at seeing the body mm. of Cesar towards the end he, he puts his arm across his shoulder and kind of like almost lifts his elbow as he goes <gasps> yeah. like and you've got this weird closed off body at a weird angle kind of movement yeah like um, big exaggeration pushing and pulling and stretching mm. and squeezing yeah who he actually reminded me of and and it, maybe maybe this chap imitated him is Lugosi as Dracula mm. yep yep um, draws on a lot of the same sort of stuff the use of the you know, the slow opening of the hand into, you know, almost like a talon. Mm. There's a scene in, in this where Caligari does the same. As you were saying, the lifting of the arm. Um, yeah. A lot of those were theatre techniques because mm. you couldn't necessarily hear from the back, so you'd make whatever action it is very big and very large and very loud. That's and right, yeah. Because theatre was, fil- oh, sorry, early film was basically recorded yeah, theatre. It took a while for that to really establish itself as like well you can get the camera right up in someone's face hmm. so you can actually be extremely subtle one eyebrow or whatever which he does do some amazing eyebrow acting in this mm. but his his physicality so he's all hunched over as Caligari and then when the revelation comes that oh he's the, the head of the, the mm. sanitarium he's upright and his hair's slicked back a little bit more and his face is brighter no same, glasses. Yeah, yep. same glasses yeah same glasses but my I think my favourite part is that last Look, and that's where that subtlety mm. comes in. There's no more clutching under your breast, and <gasps> it is that really like, okay. Does when he says, "Oh, I've got a plan," or whatever it was, I know what to do now. Is he going to turn him into another mm. somnambulist, or is he going to treat him because the whole thing was? And that's a perfect narrative hook, you know. They a lot of early films over-explain, and because it's like, well, the audience doesn't get the mode, so they mm. won't get the narrative. So. Yeah, I love it. It's it's exactly what a good horror film is. It's like, oh, but what happens next? And of course, now we're in the age where you'll just get a subpar sequel, sequel mm. and yeah. seven more or twelve in the case of Saw, because there's a new one of that. But yeah. you get the the spare cabinet of Doctor Caligari, yeah, or yeah. or just cabinets, cabinets, mm. yeah, Caligari's cabinets. Mm. <laughs> mm. But you can, I mean, I don't have my list, but when I did lecture on this, I had a whole list of this big map of all these films that pull elements from this. Mm. And it's even like Silence of the Lambs and things like that, that, that veiled 
roles and all that duality of personality, all that, all that stuff is so fantastic. And mm. the idea of the villain going undercover, but doing it for a moral reason to discover what's going on. But then the actions are immoral. Yeah, mm. I love it. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just a really good film, not a very big cast. Um, obviously we have, we have Francis, who's the, sort of lead guy running around despairing all over the place um just constantly just fantastic despairing mm. yeah and his fiance who we learn in the very last scene is called jane um, yeah, it takes a while he just refers to her as my fiance yeah. oh no i think she's introduced at the carnival from memory but yeah yeah I, I i did not catch that her exactly. name was jane till right at the end and she just spent most of it with very sad eyes mm, wondering mm. about the place yeah. but um lil dagover who's one of the big actresses from the Weimar Republic uh, film period. This was kind of one of her first big breakout roles. Mm. And with with a very small role, um, kind of not doing much except for getting kidnapped. Kind of the only woman in the entire thing, though. Yeah. Um, mm. she She's really good, though. I, yeah. I, I thought that that's easily the sort of role which could go badly, badly wrong. Um, mm. We've seen a lot of damsels in distresses who, when they don't have a lot written for them, um, kind of can't add more to it. Yeah, um, they just get bigger and louder. Yeah, I really liked how she depicted um, the character of Jane, though, mm. even, even though there was not a massive amount for her to do. No, just kind of disturbed enough to be withdrawn and odd. Yeah, but mm. now this was yeah, just I'm just really impressed. I'll be honest. I'm just like this. Just, just bloody told good you, thing. didn't I? You did. Hey? You did. Um, and it, it it clearly is massively influential i do want to touch on the music mm. because obviously this was a silent film and yep. i did ask while we were watching it was this orchestration an orchestration that would have been played during the film because obviously silent films usually had some musical had accompaniment. accompaniment yeah um i really feel that the music for this particular version that we're watching is is excellent and excellent, really yeah. helps tell that story um mm. it's really well motivated like i think saying going up the stairs and mm. the piano's mm. trilling upwards and there's well, a when, weird when game boy scene with the yeah <laughs> the, the weird game boy like music at the beginning bleepy blop i think it's electronic flute or something mm. it's so the scene where um caligari um you know he sees all the words that the words appear yeah. you are Cal- and you it, must they become had caligari. those atonal sounds um where it was, it was not music. It was a soundscape. Yep. Um, I thought that was really good. That that fitted that scene really well. Mm. Mm. But I suppose the, the question I have though is, um, with with films from this era, we know that, for example, Metropolis has mm. got uh, there's versions with Queen music yep. added to it and things yep. like that. What is I suppose the the viewpoint on what music either adds or indeed takes away from the experience does does the fact that there is music there which is helping i I felt it helped me as a 21st century viewer yeah definitely it helped me with the narrative in terms of keeping me on track because that music does so much in in modern film a lot of cues in it does that then mean that this was maybe a less i suppose authentic experience or was it an experience that made it more accessible well Without going back 100 years, you will never get an authentic experience. But I think I mentioned to you at the beginning, watching an older transfer, like a pre-restoration transfer, is actually quite interesting because it it's mistimed because, mm. you know, the cameras back then weren't necessarily one-to-one frame-to-frame. Mm-hmm. So you get speed-ups and slow-downs and, and stuff. And the cranks and over-cranks. Exactly. And the film was not particularly well-preserved. Um it was an interesting because that's that's the way I first saw it. it was on a really low quality DVD mm. 
that was just telesend from a reel to reel. That was uh, years ago now, early two thousands or something like that. That was that was a completely different experience to watching it as a four K remaster with five point one orchestration with it. Mm. Um, that did have a soundtrack that was different to this one. The other one was very uh, electronic-y from memory. Like it was very much on a synthesizer where they were like, uh, piano, uh, guitar, uh, mm. whatever. Um, I mean, they all the silent films generally intended to have music playing with them mm. as a live experience. It was a limit of the technology rather than the intention. Mm. So where they could, they would have music playing along with it too. Because it is, it is that other piece of vis- uh, sensory cues. Well, there is another film from this period, um, which yeah, f- famously or infamously, depending on what DVD or Blu-ray you, you get, you, you're going to get an entirely different soundtrack to it. It's Nosferatu. Exactly. Um, yeah. And there's been some bloody awful ones. So Real terrible 80s synth <laughs> stuff for <laughs> yes. that. Yes. Yeah. So but again, if you, even if you look at Nosferatu, which I think came out 22 from memory, so not much further past this, the silhouetting and the staging of dark and light, like they, they learned a lot in that time period. And each of these filmmakers in this period really built on one another. Mm. I can only imagine that the intention was always to have that soundtrack to be evocative and or provocative in the case of some of this stuff. But yeah, I mean, silent films generally were intended to have some kind of musical accompaniment. There's silent films that were shot and then there would be live readings mm. from the actors while the film was playing, which... Seems a little bit impractical, but I do remember coming across those things. But yeah, I mean, the authentic experience is to watch the film and enjoy it. Mm. And I think we did that. I think I've shown this to a lot of film students uh, who are maybe haven't seen anything earlier than you know the 80s or maybe the 70s. Mm. And I don't tell them when this is from. I say it's very early 20th century. Then I try and get them to give me a number of, oh, you know, but you know, their understanding of... The, the early 20th century it's one big block mm. you know um, but I lead into the German Expressionist movement World War One, World War Two. so there's all these historical factors that feed into this but I think it's interesting that the human condition no matter when it is in time still comes through mm. and that's what I like about these kinds of, and Metropolis is another example where that kind of yeah, that humanist perspective that's in there really does transcend the filmic techniques and all that kind of thing, the narrative, the story of it, you know, and it's, if you've got a good story, it's a good story regardless of, of when it's told. You know, we're still telling Beowulf mm-hmm. this much later. Yeah. Um, I think that's a really important part of what this is and the students were always very surprised by the quality of the film, mm. regardless of the actual physical quality, but the, the narrative construct, because it's a story that's kind of taught in flashback. The whole Most of it's in flashback or mm. imagination. Mm with an unreliable narrator, which is, of course, a big trope of noir and, and films that go past that. And the characterization with the very small cast is very clear. Mm. You know, you've got very easy-to-read antagonistic and protagonistic forces. It's it's just a, such a solid film. And to have been created in a time when film was brand new mm. is so much more impressive because they kind of got it right almost straight away. Yeah. Mm. You know, and then there was another 100 years of exploration and mm. they're still kind of trying to nail it down like you got Blade Runner up there and it's like you know epitome of noir and it's you know what's the epitome of horror and it's like well depends who you are but for me Alien the thing Mm. and again it's those those faceless kind of perspectives Mm. because this is all supposedly told from the one perspective right Mm. until we get to the end and suddenly we see this veil that's lifted and yeah 
It's interesting the films you just mentioned because they're also films that were unappreciated at their time. Very much so. Mm. Very much. This did pretty well. This, yeah. This did pretty well for the most part. But again, limited exposure. Again, it was never it never found an audience until significantly later. Mm. Because well, it certainly wouldn't have found an, an audience in in the English speaking world. I would have thought until much later. No, well, Germany at that time was really isolated. People were not interested after World War One. They were, you know, that's why it became my republic and all this kind of thing. And so as as Stephen was saying, people were probably more inclined, in, like in the states, to go and see you know the latest Max Sennett film. Yeah, cowboys, Indians, have, yeah. big, 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 loud. You know. Mm. You know, physical comedy and stuff. Something like this. I yeah, mean, they didn't want to be reminded of it, but the German artists were like, "No, this is this more, is now yeah. our culture. Mm. This is the this is the seed of our culture that we need to move forward from." Mm. Because disregarding that trauma is, you know, false or whatever. And in terms of when this was written as well, uh, this was written in the winter of 1918. Mm. This is written. Th- th- this is written like a month after the armistice is signed. Yeah. So the the the. the script writers who are putting this thing together they spent six weeks um constructing it and they're doing it immediately in the aftermath of the first world war and mm. i think that's really interesting to sort of look at and to consider mm. um, well, it probably wasn't a lot to cheer about let's be honest no yeah um it was over but <laughs> what was left was not in great conditions well, surprised mm. they had enough young men to actually make films yeah i mean they didn't they didn't have a lot left mm. it took a long time for that that part to but the men that were left were damaged mm. you know yeah. psychologically damaged you know pre ptsd definition it was all right there and it, a lot of them weren't soldiers when they left mm. they were artists and poets and mm. creators and they had to go and do this horribly traumatic thing and, and they also didn't know they were going to go do a big horrible no. traumatic thing the right. attitude from everyone going into the first world war was That's fine be over in a few months it'll mm. be you know like a boy's own adventure off yep. we go oh goodness it's horrible and then everyone comes back and they're severely damaged um hans janowitz and carl mayer were the, were the writers of this mm. one and they basically spent six weeks together um they were both um, pacifists, funnily enough. Mm. Um, Mayer actually feigned madness in order to avoid military service during the war. There you go. So um, First-hand experience. Yeah, but the, the fact that they came together and at this time um, produced something that I, I think really reflected that kind of mood mm. of sort of distrust, but also like kind of a nostalgic kind of setting. Yeah. The setting felt quite 19th century. Um, yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. Again, leaning into the the Hans Christian Andersen as well, which mm. presumably many people would have been brought up with those tales in that part of the world. I thought it was interesting that the setting was nostalgic to like a better time, but the story was very much like we're not sure what's happening. Are we mad? What is reality? All this, all this yeah. business. Um, yeah, it's 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 really compelling. Uh, if, if if this hasn't convinced you to watch it, you I don't know what else we mm. can say. This and if you haven't watched it and you're listening to this half of the podcast, what are you doing? Well, mm. some, some people like to do that. Yeah, they, fair enough. Yeah, they like to go in ahead of time knowing what to look out for. And, uh, you know, there's no wrong way to listen to this podcast. What? Uh, yeah, okay, yep. Except maybe at double speed. At double speed and backwards? Mm. Backwards would be a problem. Yeah, it's happening. Ah. <laughs> and possibly in some different tints and with some organ music. Who yeah, that's yeah. true. Well, you know, we've we've had live piano on this show yeah. at least once. Um, before we move on to the trivia, I just wanted to touch on the title cards themselves. Um, the font and the style of the words, which obviously were in, were still in the original German, and we mm. then had the subtitles at the bottom where we were able to read what the words were saying. But though those, those those title cards were so cool, so I, I, incredible, yeah, such I, a, just that perfect touch 
to a start just to really enhance everything else mm. no straight lines all freehand crazy jagged shapes sitting in the background mm. dark colors mm. lots of green as well lots of green yeah it was grays i think it's been retinted green but mm. yeah like again that it wasn't just the black and white title card with a nice sort of floral you know stamped border mm. it was ragged yeah. and strange and difficult you know, yeah. like, and this is a difficult Once film. Once again, you know, you, I'm looking at those and thinking, who's ripped that? <laughs> like, uh, immediately thought of, um, I'm going to pronounce his name wrong because I don't know how to pronounce it. Um, Yonan v- Vasquez, the guy who does um, mm, Invader Zim. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. you have totally ripped from this, haven't you? So many mm. people. I mean, that's, uh, but that's spikiness. You know, I've done whole lectures yeah. just on that. The title card design, uh, mm. you know, enhancing, enhancing understanding without necessarily being very overt about it. You have to read the titles to get what's going on realistically. Mm. So you are forced to be exposed to that. So it's a really important moment to design properly. Yeah. And I think they nailed it. It's just, it's such mm. a, there's so much clever thought that goes into this that it just, it constantly And, and, and kids, if, if you do end up watching the film, if we've convinced you to do it, you're going to learn so much German. I mean, mm. it's just great. It's mm-hmm. it's learning a new language as well. One yeah. of the great things about that was fl- flicking between where the English subtitles were, looking up at the associated German words. <laughs> There's some good German words. There is some great German words. But, um, but one of the fun things I found was that because of the style of not only the, the font, but also the the kind of squiggles that they had around it. Mm. Certain words had squiggles next to them that looked like they could have been a longer word. There were certain words where I was going, oh, is that... Like, the word murder is is mord, M-O-R-D. But the first time I saw it, it was M-O-R-D. And then this squiggle next to it looked like it might be two R's or an E-R. And I was Mm. looking at it going, oh, is that... I couldn't tell. And that was kind of fun, where even the words, although they're clearly communicating something had an aspect where possibly because I, I'm not a fluent German reader and speaker, but it did make me go, I kind of like that even the language that they're using mm. to me communicate this is a bit off kilter and I'm not entirely yeah. sure that I can fully yeah, trust still and comprehend it. it. Yeah. You're like, well, I'm not, yeah. Every time you look at it, you're expecting one thing and getting, and it's not consistent, right? Like it doesn't, mm. it's not consistent. There's sometimes a few bits and pieces in that, but yeah, again, it's just so clever. So, so po- everything's pointed towards that same outcome, which doesn't happen often on film. I've been on plenty of films mm. where every single person in charge has a very different idea of what's going on, and it comes out in the wash. Like it comes out in the final, final thing to be like, well, the director wanted one thing, the producers wanted one thing, the designer wanted one thing, and the actors wanted another thing, and you just get a hodgepodge. But I feel like that unity of vision. Same as Hitchcock. You know, Hitchcock famously said, "I've already shot my movie." In my head, I just need to get it onto a camera mm. or whatever, paraphrase there. Mm. But yeah, those kind of filmmaking auteurs. But again, the the mood with this film from what I've researched is that everyone was very keen to make it. Everyone was very pointed towards that that mode of expression, which is that oddness and that strangeness. And, and it worked really well. But yeah, you can't imagine it going down particularly well with audiences who are maybe don't want to necessarily wallow. Mm. You know, the average person didn't want to wallow in that post-World War One feeling. Yeah. Because it was the Great War. It was the war. There was nothing else coming. Yeah. But... Unless they asked, you know, Cesare, the future seer, and went, yeah. mm, uh, you know, will I survive the Great War? Which one? Whoa! Yes. Ooh. Bum, bum, bum. You, you thought that was a great one. Wait yeah. for the next one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Surely you... we won't do it again. Well... <laughs> uh, It'll be a long time. Yeah. Mm. 
Would you guys like some trivia about? Lay it on. I think we've covered it. No, but go go on. Open up the trivia cabinet. Okay, the cabinet is opening. Great. Behold my marvelous trivia, (laughs) which is what Uh, I assume his voice was like. Behold. Oh yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Writer Hans Janowitz claims to have gotten the idea for the film from when he was at the carnival one day as a young man. He saw a strange man lurking in the shadows. Mm. The next day, he heard that a girl was brutally murdered there. He went to the funeral and saw the same man lurking around. <laughs> uh, he had no proof that the strange man was the murderer, but he fleshed out that idea into the story of this film. Mm-hmm. There you go. It probably turned out it was a heartbroken father, but you know. Mm-hmm. It, could, it entirely could have been. But yeah, mm. I kind of feel like th- that that mood, which also feels quite um, Hans Christian Andersen. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think that mood is definitely reflected in what they made. Yeah. Uh, as you oh, say, yeah. everyone was aiming towards that one goal. Mm. Um, the sets were made out of paper, and the shadows were painted onto the walls, mm-hmm. which I thought was quite a nice touch. Um, okay, that's interesting, because I, I thought a lot of it might have been canvas from the looks of it, but um, paper. Paper was cheaper. Yeah. Mm. Like you said, they need a lot of canvas. I didn't oh, say anything yeah. then, but yeah, there's no canvas. It's gone. Mm. They had to just make do with whatever they had. Indeed, uh, because of the fact that this was shot in post-World War One Germany, uh, electricity was strictly rationed. So the director, Robert Viner, ended the film simply uh, painting light beams onto backdrops. Uh, he was shooting on severely confined sets, which forced him to use unusual camera angles. Mm. So mm. whilst a lot of it is, you know, the German expressionism and playing around with those angles, a lot of it was also just the practicality of we've got a small space and a limited amount of time to do things in. Yeah. Let's just shoot it at this angle. Yeah, mm. it's that limitation of art makes good art. And no, no doubt they preserved all these sets and they're available to view somewhere. Ooh, no. Yeah, <laughs> no, not quite. I assume that the paper's not going to hold up very long. But mm. um, in the May twelfth, nineteen twenty one edition of the Chicago Daily News, Carl Sandburg wrote a review of this film, uh, and he said, "Quote." It is a healthy thing for Hollywood, Culver City, Universal City, and all other places where movie film is being produced that this photoplay has come along at this time. Photoplay. It is sure to have healthy hunches and show new possibilities in style and method to our American producers. End quote. Mm-hmm. And, and it's, it's so good that they took up those words and started producing some <laughs> really worthwhile films. Really nailed system. that whole uh, yeah. intentional filmmaking. I think it only, only took them like 40, you know, <laughs> 40-something years to yeah. pick up on that. Well, you look yeah. at things like The Maltese Falcon yeah. and other mm. film noirs. Arguably, they did yep. learn the lesson. Yeah. I'm, I'm being facetious. A little bit. Mm. But I, but you, I think you're also right, where they were like, hmm, yeah, cool. Mm. Uh, can we make Charlie Chaplin do a dance again? Let's, yeah. let's do that. Yeah. You know, oh, Laurel and Hardy are going to lift a piano up the stairs. <laughs> well, hey, let's watch this. <laughs> What's going to happen? Admittedly, though, that is excellent. I mean, those are, those are all... Seminal, yeah, comedies. But, but, but yeah, like you said, the, the desire to create. You, something you probably really... mean yes, Abbott and Costello. Really, That's, that, yeah, that was yeah. sort of an idea. But um, yeah. true. Uh, when the film opened at the Capital City Theatre in New York in April 1921, some audience members reportedly booed and demanded their money back. Oh, this was not unique to America, though. When it premiered in Germany, the film was jeered and was actually withdrawn uh, mm. briefly. Um, it, they then worked up, the production company worked up a new uh, campaign uh, to promote it and reopened it 
um, in another Berlin theatre and it was successful because I think they realised, no, we have to tell people that this is actually not a mm. not a comedy, not a fun thing. That yeah. You're going to have, well, you're gonna have maybe, a bad time. Maybe they were playing it with the wrong soundtrack, right? They had someone on an Possibly. organ and the thing opened with... But again, it was unlike a lot of films that were being made before and after. Mm. So it was an anomaly of... And it does speak to the fact that you kind of need to message your audience ahead of time mm. to figure out... So they can figure out what to expect. Because, I mean, horror, you look at a trailer these days. Mm. The art of the trailers is lost a little bit. Because mm. you get the whole film and that's the studio going, we have no faith in the ability for this film to tell itself. Mm. So we're going to put it all in the... In the uh, the trailer or the narration for Blade Runner again, looking mm. at the thing, it's like audiences won't get this. Let's mm. explain everything with a boy. Well, Harrison I suppose it'd be voiceover. very hard to sort of, you know, the, 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 tell the audience what they're going to see. What 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 are we going to see? We've invented well, a new yeah. genre. It's yeah, it's old horror. You're going to feel bad. Come on in. Yeah, it's you know, Grand Guignol on on screen. Yeah, mm. yeah. When uh, writer Hans Janowitz wrote the female lead character, he had his girlfriend in mind to play it, because his girlfriend was the actress Gilda Langner. Mm-hmm. Um, but she didn't it end up getting the part. It ended up going to Lil Dagover instead. Oof, that couldn't have mm. gone down well. Well, maybe she wasn't available. Maybe. 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 Mm. But, yeah. Uh, no surviving copies of the script were believed to exist until the early 1950s when Werner Krauss, who played Dr. Caligari, revealed he still had his copy. Mm. Uh, that copy was purchased after his death by the German film archive Deutsche Cinemacht. I think I've said that right. Um, it remained unavailable for public consumption until 1995 when a full transcript was published. So you can now get the original script. And there's been a bunch of translations done on it too. Mm. Yeah. But yes, so um, that's just a note for actors in general. Keep, keep your scripts. Keep, keep your scripts, yeah. I think you can show. get it on uh, archive.org mm. or the Gutenberg Project, I think, has some of the translations on it as well. Mm. If you Google it, you'll find it. Uh, Hans Janowitz, uh, one of the writers, visited a fortune teller who predicted that he would survive the First World War. Uh, this inspired him to write the scene in which Cesare predicts Alan's death at the fair. Mm. What I want to know is, did the fortune teller go, you're going to survive the First World War? And he went, the first? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> His fortune teller going, oh, but I've said too much. The magics are... Uh, uh, mm, I've got to go. Um, yeah, I, I just like that. It seems like Hans Janowitz spent all of his time at carnivals before he wrote this film. Well, there wasn't much else to do. Like carnivals were big business. Yeah, it's true. You know, uh, like when they, one rolled into town, they have them all the time over there too. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the final bit of trivia I have here is the producer Eric Prommer originally chose Fritz Lang to direct this film, who mm. of course went on to direct yes, um, Metropolis. Metropolis. Uh, but Lang became unavailable due to his involvement in the filming of De Spinnen, uh, or The Spiders, mm. uh, which was this episodic film series um, that was in German cinema. So uh, Robert Viner was selected instead. Do you think if Fritz Lang had been in charge of this one, would it have been significantly different? I don't think so. Mm. I think uh, like Fritz Lang spent a lot of time on those small time TVs and small production stuff, like cutting his teeth. And when Metropolis came along, he had his vision pretty pretty well set, I think. He knew what it was. And there's a lot of that kind of staging and the the messages of the otherness and all that kind of stuff. That's in Metropolis as well. Yeah. I Metropolis, think- I think, is quite, quite a bit more indulgent in terms of how much time it spends. This mm. is quite an efficient, short, to-the-point film. Yeah. Um, again, it could be the outside considerations of time and money. 
spacing but about Lang, the Lang went on to do a lot of film noir as well. Yes. So I think yeah. he would have been very, very well suited to this. Yes, yeah. I think it would have been a different film, but not hugely mm. different. Okay. Because, yeah, yeah I, I did wonder about that. Are the, you going to say you've got a time machine? We're going to go ask it. Yeah. Um, Let's see sure. Fritz Lang's version. Yeah. Great. All Wait, right. I don't well, speak I, German. Damn. Yeah, now after this show, we'll, uh, we'll attempt to travel back in time and we'll let you know. If, Great. Yeah. Well, hang on. Just travel back to now and let us know if it works. Yeah. And... Oh. Uh, yeah, it's basically... Hang on a sec. Oh, there's, there's a time machine coming in. Oh. <laughs> wow, what a crap sounding time machine. <laughs> Shut up, Murray. <laughs> it's me from, from the future, from about half an hour. We, we met Fritz Lang. Wow, how did it go? Oh, he... Didn't speak English. Oh, okay. damn! Did you take Did you take your English German dictionary? I did not, but fr- oh. from what I what I can gather from what little I know of German, um, he ordered two beers, right, right. and um, and went left at the library. Great. Well, Fantastic. look, we've got that. Yeah. We've got that as a historical record. I think creating a time machine really worked out well for all of us. Mm. Yeah. All yeah. right. I've got to go now and restore actual Stephen. To the timeline. So, okay. so okay. is there two Stevens now? Uh, yeah, the other Stevens just being very quiet and polite because, okay. he, yeah. Okay. Otherwise, the time stream's going to get weird. Anyway, I'm going to go. Okay, goodbye. All right, thanks for that, Stephen. And no worries. FX. Hey guys, I'm back. Hey, you won't hey. believe what just happened. Oh, what? Um, <laughs> all right, guys. All that remains for us is to score the film. Mm. Mm. Uh, and we're going to start with you, Murray, because it was your first time watching yeah. the Cabinet of Doctor Caligari. Uh, it feels kind of wrong to score the t- yeah, to yeah a bit reductive score something out of 10 <laughs> yeah scoring that, out of 325 yeah then. okay yeah fantastic Three, 325 yeah that's, that's your the, top scale right the top scale is 325 yeah. it's very granular look I'd, I'd have to probably give this a solid 298 it's good it's it pretty is. good on the scale. It's pretty good. It's pretty good on the scale. Um, that, I'm not nice. really sure why I'm knocking off that, those 27 points. You've got to have somewhere honest. to go, I think. Yeah. You know what I mean? You've got to have somewhere to, to really build up to. There's nothing about this film for me that didn't work. Um, I really enjoyed the experience, and I'm not just saying that just to be wanky. It really is. Kids, mm. believe me. Um, search it out, because I think you really will dig it. Um, yep. Particularly if you're sitting there with someone who lectures in the bastard, because um, <laughs> you will pick up so much more. But it really is an entertaining hour and a half. It's amazing to watch something that's a hundred years old, mm. um, and it's just yeah. For anyone who's a cinemaphile, as I like to think I might be, looking around this myself, room, yeah. Um, yep. I, I think, yeah, this is definitely one of those films that should be in a thousand one films you should see before you die. I believe it is. It's, it's in there. It yeah. is in there. Yeah. 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 So, so there's another one knocked off the list. Thank you. You're welcome. 1,000 to go. Uh, what about yourself, Brett? Uh, I think I'm probably going to give it something like <coughs> 318. Okay. 300 that's that's very three. high. That's oh, very that high is, because very high. my favorite genre of film is horror. And this is the progenitor to use a very technical term it's the origin of so many things that i like about horror um and i also love the art from the german expressionist period as well because it is that strangeness it is that otherworldliness and it just marries so much with what film can be you know it's supposed to be a portal into the other Mm. um you can tell an everyday story that's cool i'm more attracted to the fantastical and the strange and the weird uh, and how much 
you can change the viewer's understanding of what they're seeing. You know, like Lynch's films. They don't make a lot of sense, but they're amazing. Mm. You know? Um, and even the fiction stuff, like Lovecraft. Mm. You know, horrible person. Fantastic world that he's created of just on the other veil of reality. And I think this film does that really well of being relevant still a hundred years later is a really big achievement. That's I it. Think. Exactly. With everything that's come afterwards, technically, narratively, you know, historically to it's, still it be is, that it's relevant. It's one of those experiences. It's like watching, um, freaking Casablanca and going oh my god this has influenced this 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 mm-hmm. it has generated so many um, yep uh, cliches um, and you see that in the same film yeah and Metropolis has the same vibes as well mm. it sets up so much about that modernist perspective and yeah mm. so there you go for me uh, I'm going to give it 292.5 out of 325 okay okay explain uh, the 0.5 where did the 0.5 come off for you um it was probably that there was just slightly too much grease paint in, yeah. in the face. Um, okay, yeah, that's definitely a point five. Also, 292.5 out of 325 is 9 out of 10, uh, which is what yeah. I would do on the old scoring system. This is... this is um, It's 2020. You've got to move on. I think some of the music in the opening titles, that's that's where it lost a few points. I like, <laughs> the I, Game I, Boy. I like the Game Boy music. Yeah. But look, this is, this is a really incredible piece of, of cinema. Um, and one of the criteria I always try and judge these films on for this program is could they have made it any better at the time they were making it i think this film is better than they could have made it i don't quite know how to justify that logic in my head Mm. but it the fact that you know it it holds up so well from so long ago the 4k restoration is beautiful yeah um if if you can watch the 4k restoration it, it, it really adds a lot to to the experience, I feel um, the the performances, the direction, the art, the artistry, it, it clearly all is pointing in that one direction, and it works so well. It, it's incredibly enjoyable. The music is brilliant. Um, it's you know story wise, it's good. Um, it's it's a story which we've seen multiple times, but this feels like the first time it was mm. put to celluloid, and it's it's just eminently watchable um, and. It's not. It's not a perfect film, but it's it's close. Mm. It's it's a really really good film. So nine out of ten, or two hundred ninety two point five out of three hundred and twenty five mm. uh, for me, guys. That brings us to the end of this episode of the podcast. Thank you so much for watching the Cabinet of Doctor Caligari with me. Look, it's been an absolute pleasure. Or in the original German, it's been Scheinhafen. Um, actually, that's I have no idea what that means. I that think sounds I like that, that sounds something. Much rude, ruder. Quite yeah. rude, yeah. yeah. But probably in German means um, it has been a blessing to be in this circle of brotherly love. Um, Especially so, in Germany. Yeah, thank you very much, Stephen. No yeah, way. thank you. I, I apologize to anyone that's, uh, again, listening to me pontificate about films that I like. But hey, that's why you're here. That's why I keep yeah, on coming Yeah, screw back. those guys. Oh, look, not all of them can be Cabin in the Woods craziness. Sometimes I'm just going to give you a film lecture. That's, you know... It's the dichotomy of me. I think it brought a lot to it. Oh, I'm glad. I'm glad. Mm. I'm glad that, and I hope more people go and see this film. Mm. I think it's a very important film. And if you like cinema. Well, I hope if they don't. I hope Cesar tracks them down. (laughs) Doesn't stab them, mm. but instead strangles them by their chin. Yeah. Mm. In shadow only. Mm. Tells them when they're going to die. Yeah. By the following dawn. In about four Mm. seconds. (laughs) Yeah. Also, uh, Murray, the... um, 
the German word for pleasure is Vergnügen. No, well, that's what you take how when you strange, have a hay How strange that the Germans can take a word that <laughs> is pleasurable and turn it into something that sounds like an operation it's been on your soaked bowels. in vinegar for a week. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Vergnügen. Yeah. Vergnügen. Yeah, no, that's what I take when I get hay fever. Well, <laughs> happy Vergnügen. Really clears it up. Yeah, well, uh, I, I do have to say, though, uh, Murray, Brett... What, it, what does Scheinthafen actually mean? Can we I, look that I one dread up? to find out. I don't think it means a thing. I think I made it up. You know what? Sounds very German. I have the magic of Google Translate in front of me. Mm. I'm just, how would I you? S- how I think it's spelled S C H E I N D H A F E N. That's how I would spell Scheinhafen. Scheinhafen, as one word, doesn't come up with anything. But if you split it between the D and the H to the words Scheind and Hafen, it becomes seem to have. Oh. Well, there we go. There we seem go. to have some Vernergen. I seem yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Vergnergen. That's what you'll go. get listening to this program. So kids, Scheinhafen Vergnergen to you all. That's mm. Agnes Vergnergen to yes. you as well. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, everybody. We hope that you seem to have had some pleasure uh, listening <laughs> to us. And do uh, go away and work on your German. It's great fun. It, yeah. it truly is. Um, thank you so much for listening in. Um, this episode was inspired simply because it was turning 100 years old. But sometimes we ask you, the listener, what do you want us to watch? Is there any silent films you'd like us to look at? Should we look at Nosferatu next? Or indeed Metropolis? Or some other ones we haven't mentioned? If you have a strong feeling and you'd like to share it with us, we can be found on Facebook. Just search for the Cinema Catch-Up Club there. Leave your suggestions there. Um, You can also become a member of our Patreon. And our Patreon patrons get uh, a little bit of uh, more say because they give us money and that's how capitalism works. (laughs) Um, But if you want to become a patron over there, for as little as a dollar a month, you can help support uh, the program. Just search for us at patreon.com forward slash CCUC podcast. And of course, make sure that you're subscribed on itunes or spotify or soundcloud or wherever you listen to quality podcasts but that's all for this week so until next time giant hafenvergnergen You have been listening to a Thought Jar Productions podcast. For more information, please visit thoughtjarproductions.com.